You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Stephen Shavura, part one. I'm joined here by Dr. Stephen Shavura, one of Australia's foremost experts on the history of church and state. Uh, He's a prolific writer. Uh, He lectures. Uh, We've seen opinion pieces in The Australian and The Spectator. Uh, You cover issues like free speech, uh, identity politics, and the very worrying, frankly, state of our universities. Your most recent uh, co-authored book is Reason, Religion and the Australian Polity, A Secular State. And we need to talk about a secular state because that's a very deeply misunderstood word today. But we'll come to that in a moment. Can I begin by saying to you that you're an academic historian that I heard about, first of all, from some of your students long before I'd met you. Uh, And one of them in particular said, we've got this unusual lecturer who asks questions that seem to challenge the orthodoxy and we all erupt. And then we stop and say, hang on, we don't know why we think what we think. And it emerges a whole group of young people who loved being challenged and having their paradigms broken up a bit by you. So I was always very keen to meet you personally. And I must say, I, uh, I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation. But would you begin by coming to the issue of why you love history and why you think it matters. Because a lot of people would say it doesn't anymore. It's just bunk, Mm. like Henry Ford said. Yeah, uh, well, first, it's a real pleasure to be here, John. Um, I think my my love of history is probably something I've had certainly since childhood. I think in some ways, uh, there are two ways that you can really sort of escape the world. And one is through science fiction, but another is through history. Uh, So I've always sort of had a love of history, and, I, and I've always actually enjoyed talking uh, to people who aren't necessarily of my generation because they were always able to tell me about what seemed to be to be another world with different technology, different ways of thinking and things like that. But I think what really struck me most was in my first year at university uh, in the late 90s when one of my lecturers sort of it was one of, it might even have been the very first uh, lecture or tutorial I attended. And he looked at us all and he said, you are all hundreds of years old. And I thought, well, that's very strange. And what he meant was, is that we as human beings are not just biological creatures. I mean, biologically, I'm 41 years old, uh, but there is more to my identity and there is more that goes into explaining how I live my life and how I think than my biology. And in actual fact, I have imbibed ideas that I myself did not create, that I'm not responsible for, but predate me hundreds and hundreds of years. And also, I have been born into a pre-existing society with pre-existing institutions, with, again, with pre-existing philosophical ideas that justify those institutions that, again, I myself did not create, but have to a large extent shaped me and have been themselves evolving over thousands of years. And so what really sort of came home to me was this idea that if I really want to understand myself, I need actually to understand the origins of the institutions and the practices and the ideas that I was born into that have so shaped me. And so for me, one of the most important things about history is that it's actually a journey of self-discovery. And anyone who wants to understand who they are must take some interest in history. Well, it's an interesting way of putting it because uh, I love history too, uh, and my degree is in history. Good. But it seems to me today that there's an 
utter determination, including on the part of a lot of modern historians, to actually cut us off from our past. And in particular, to say to people of, um, uh, I suppose you'd say, of, of, of European descent, that somehow or other Western culture, Western history, is a story of oppression, of cruelty, of uh, patronising paternalism, if you like, uh, and that it ought to be discredited extraordinarily to the point where it's subject to massive revision and no longer to be relied upon. Yeah, I, th I think that's actually a real problem in the universities, and I think we can all see it sort of it's spilling out now literally into the streets. Um, but this whole idea that Western civilization is really just a history of oppression. Uh, I mean, ironically, this whole program of critiquing is itself a product of Western civilization. So probably the first great sustained critique was St. Augustine's book, The City of God. Uh, Augustine writes this book uh, in the, uh, oh gosh, was it the uh, crossing over the fourth and, fifth, uh, fourth and fifth centuries. And essentially what St. Augustine does is he looks at the Roman Empire and says, well, actually, the Roman Empire says that it's sort of the eternal city, uh, that it stands for justice, it stands for uh, peace and order. But St. Augustine said that when you really look at it, what it really stands for is just a lust for domination. Uh, and so this whole idea that we can look at our own civilization and critique it and sort of unveil the hypocrisy, that in itself, ironically, is a program firmly lodged in the Western, in Western civilization itself, started for the most part by St. Augustine, the early uh, Christian father. And this, again, this, this tradition of sort of looking back and critiquing it, again, it sort of comes up again with the Renaissance and the Reformation as they look back over hundreds of years and, and fairly or unfairly said that the you know, hundreds of years have been uh, histories of, of oppression and, and superstition. And then it's sort of taken up again uh, by the Enlightenment thinkers, again, a, a Western civilization phenomenon, the, the Enlightenment, and they look to the past and say, well, this is sort of a a horrible history of oppression and superstition and, and those sorts of things. Uh, but second, I think it's incredibly important uh, in any course to actually teach uh, the bad things that, you know, did happen. So of course, uh, there is oppression, there is slavery, there is injustice, there are all sorts of horrible things. Uh, but the important thing is to remember that these are not unique to Western civilization. Uh, these are practices that are universally um, uh, pursued by all civilizations that have ever existed. So, and, and I'm happy uh, for universities to teach, teach the oppression, but what they also need to teach are the good things as well. I think just the very pro project of critiquing, of, 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 of self-critique is very much a Western phenomenon. I think that's a good thing that's come out of Western civilization, particularly the Christian heritage. But secondly, uh, I think people who want to critique Western civilization need to bear in mind that their very critique that it involves oppression, that it involves inequality, that it involves violation of human rights, that the underlying worldview of that, that equality is something that is good, that human rights uh, exist and that they are good, that freedom is better than um, subordination, that these ideals themselves are products of Western civilization. But the critique has to be balanced. And when it's not balanced, uh, that's when you get people um, very sadly enjoying many of the fruits 
enjoying living in prosperous societies, enjoying education in Western-style universities, but actually feeling no connection, no love, no loyalty, and no sense of personal investment that it's a project that uh, is, is well worth, uh, in many ways, celebrating and preserving. And consequently, uh, I think we're seeing um, the results of that in, in civil unrest, uh, which is essentially an attempt in, in, in some ways to pull down Western civilization with no real idea as to what they're going to replace it with. Yeah, this idea that you burn down the house that we've lived in or what's left of it without offering us an alternative. It's revolution for the sake of revolution, which yeah. seems to me to be very risky indeed. You, you mentioned the word balance. Surely critique, proper critique, means that you actually go after the hard facts. You go after the evidence. You try and interpret what has happened in the past on the basis of the best possible understanding of what really happened. Yes, oh, absolutely. And, and, and this is the thing with history. History is always actually much more interesting than anything that you could make up. And you can pretty much bet that any view of history that sees history as either wholly good and wholly righteous or wholly evil is not really going to be based in a full reading of the facts. Because at the end of the day, history is the interaction of human beings uh, with large events that in many ways are beyond their control. But the fact is that human beings, we are complex creatures. We are neither angels, we are neither demons, we are human. And that means that any account that doesn't take, that doesn't seriously um, good things that have come out of Western civilization uh, is, is less lodged in history and probably more lodged in an ideological objection. And historically, probably the strongest and most powerful ideological objection uh, to Western civilization is, is rooted Again, in an ideology that itself is a product of Western civilization, and that is Marxism. Uh, Marxism, uh, for the most part, sees very little good, at least as Marxism is, 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 mod, is expressed in the modern world, because it essentially sees Western civilization as an unfolding of economic oppression. And when you, when you reduce everything that happens in history to simply the unfolding of economic oppression, then it's going to be almost impossible for you to talk about the good things that have occurred. And that's pretty much what has happened. And so, yeah, in, in fact, what we do need is to get back to a much more subtle understanding of history, uh, which is that history is essentially the story of human beings, not of angels, not of demons, but of human beings who are capable of wonderful things, who are fearfully and wonderfully made, but still at the same time vitiated by sin. And that will allow us to actually have an objective understanding of the genuinely bad things, uh, but it'll also give us you know, the ability to be able to recognize the genuinely good things and build on the good things. I recently had the opportunity to conduct a conversation with Coleman Hughes in the United States. Now, he's a very impressive, very clear thinking, a very approachable African-American. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation because he was in New York and you could hear the traffic in the background and yeah. those never-ending sirens and police. Great city. Yeah, full of life. Yeah. But he made this very point, this need to understand that we can learn from the good and the bad. And if you take the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, we got into a conversation about the horrors of slavery, which to me has always been incomprehensible uh, yeah. and even today is nowhere near dead. 
globally. Nowhere near there. Mm, yeah. But it, where's it being fought from? Dreaded centres of Western civilization. That's where it's yes. being fought from. Yes. As indeed it always has been. Yeah. But he made the point that, uh, you know, that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but half the evil of slavery, when you think of the British Empire and the Americans involving in slavery, happened amongst blacks in Africa, where one tribe would go out, slaughter the children and the old and uh, infirm and round up the rest and sell them for a bunch of trinkets. Yeah. And something else that came across my desk that fascinated me the other day uh, was to learn that, in fact, when the British decided that once and for all, not only would they ban slavery as the most powerful nation on earth, they would go set out to break it everywhere else in the rest of the world. The Royal Navy was sent forth to go and uh, intercept ships that were carrying slaves from other countries. 17,000 white Royal Navy slavery, uh, uh, personnel apparently died seeking to end slavery. That was hardly the act uh, of a bunch of racists. Yeah. That was a, actions of white people seeking to oppose racism and the horrors of slavery. Indeed, and any statement to the effect that, say, something like racism is something that can only be practiced by a particular race, uh, in a strange way dehumanizes everyone else because racism is something that is actually, in many ways, throughout history practiced by all races. And so when we say that only white people can be racist, Essentially, what we're saying is that the complexity that goes into human nature that allows us to do both good things and bad things, that, that, that which really defines us as being human being, um, is something that really only white people have. And that, that is actually quite dehumanizing. But historically, it's just a ridiculous statement. I mean, historically, slavery was practiced um, by you know, pretty much all civilizations. So just sort of, I think to myself, it's very well known, of course, that the Greeks uh, thought that non-Greeks were sort of natural slaves, uh, barbaroi, uh, where we get the word barbarian from, the Romans practiced slavery. But here's the thing, when Alexander marched into the Persian Empire in the uh, 330s BC, he marched into the sort of the center of the Persian Empire, Persepolis. And what he discovered were Greeks who'd been enslaved by members of the Persian Empire. Uh, so you know, slavery was something, something that's just been universally distributed. Uh, among all people, it's something that that all people have have basically practiced, and so to say that 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 sort of racism is is really just the preserve of white people is just just shows historical illiteracy. And generally speaking, the only way that modern anti-race anti-racism theorists can get away with such a, a ridiculous statement is when they re, they just redefine racism. Redefine racism, yeah. and that's what's happening. That's and what's happening. Under our noses. And, and, and that's actually a really dangerous thing because what it, it sends, it essentially sends a message out to society that racism is a sin that can only be committed by white people. And that, at the end of the day, just divides people. Um, you know, if you define racism as a sin that anyone can and does commit, whether black or white or whatever, 
then at the very least, everyone can admit that they are guilty of this problem. But if you just say it's one person, then that, what that does is it makes everyone else the victim, and it makes those people the oppressor, and that is not a healthy recipe uh, for any kind of stable society. But do you know who had, who had a fantastic approach to this very issue? It was a, uh, a, an, a, an American slave named Frederick Douglass. And uh, Frederick Douglass wound up buying his own freedom, I believe. But Frederick Douglass was a very prominent anti-slavery campaigner in the 19th century. And Douglass recognized in actual fact that although slavery is a was a horrible blight on American society, he recognized that this, the, the answer to slavery came out of the very principles of the American experiment itself. And, uh, and um, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass had some fascinating things to say about the founding fathers of America. And uh, Frederick Douglass wrote this in 1852. He writes, fellow citizens, I'm not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. So I respect the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. This is a black uh, former slave speaking. They were great men too, great enough to give fame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view them is not certainly the most favorable. I, and yet I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes. And for the good that they did and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. I'll repeat that last bit. For the good that they did and very importantly, the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. And what Frederick Douglass is saying there is that yes, America is deeply marred by slavery. However, the answer to slavery, the notion that all people are created equal, the answer itself comes out of the American experiment and he could acknowledge that and that's what we're missing today. So uh, is that another way of saying that the American Constitution uh, in part reads, we hold these truths to, truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal? Yeah, that's the Declaration of Independence no. of 1776. Yeah. Correct. He's, so, yeah. so they're, they're, they're actually honouring it in the breach because they're still keeping slavery. But the seeds, yes. the outcome of that is the gradual ferment that ironically here sees vast, vast numbers of white people involved in a terrible fight to the death, an ugly, horrible civil war, no form of war worse than a civil war, largely to free black people. Yes. But that's not celebrated. No, um, and, and, and part of the reason is, you know... It was, but yeah. it's not being now. Yeah, and, and Frederick Douglass is saying, yeah, look, I recognise that the American experience has been horrific for some people, but that's not because America has lived up to its ideals. It's because it hasn't lived up to its ideals. Um, you know, in a way, there are parallels in Australia. It's taken me a long time to see this, but many Aboriginal people, just like many other Australians walking up and down our streets think that the Australian Constitution is the document that says we'll all play fairly. Mm. So if we haven't played fairly, it must be the Constitution that it's, is at fault. And that's behind a lot of the, and I'm not trying to sound unsympathetic, I just think that we need to understand what's really happening here and be more realistic about it, the push for constitutional recognition. 
Whereas actually the problem is not in the constitution, it's more in the breaching of the constitution. But that very constitution gives rise to people who think about it, to the idea that we should be treating everybody fairly. Mm. It does itself seek to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 you know, so much of the story of, of Indigenous Australia is a, is a, is a very sad story. Um, but it, it should also be remembered, well, a more subtle understanding of it is that even, even then with the story of Indigenous Australia, that that could be understood as a, uh, as a process that, that didn't live up to the, the earliest sort of hopes and wishes of, of some of the Europeans. So uh, Australia was founded explicitly uh, on the premise that it was not going to have slavery. A, a slavery was not meant to occur uh, at the founding of European uh, Australia. And when Arthur Philip came over here uh, in 1788, uh, he, he was basically told that the Aboriginal Australians or the natives as they were called back then were to be considered subjects of the crown. Now, to, to us that might sound slightly oppressive. They're, they're considered subjects of the crown. But to the British mindset, to be a subject of the crown was actually a, a great honour because what that meant was that you had rights, that you were supposed to enjoy the rights that the English enjoyed and, uh, enjoyed. and so the convicts and early settlers were told in no uncertain terms that if you harm any of these natives, you will receive the full force of the English law because you are harming subjects of the crown. Now, of course, we know tragically it did not turn out that way. And it took until 1838 for white men to Mile, be- Mile Creek Massacre. The, mild, the horrible, horrific Mile Creek Massacre for white men actually to be hanged for murdering uh, Aboriginal Australians. But I guess in some ways, there is a kind of an analogy with the American experiment. And it may be something along the lines of that um, indeed there was a horrific history that unfolded after settlement in Australia, but it was not necessarily anything intended uh, by, the founding, by the founding men and the ideals that they brought over with them. Well, like you, I've long been fascinated with the great American experiment in freedom, the revolution that actually produced freedom, unlike so many other rev revolutions. And people scoff at that because anti-Americanism is very cheap and easy. And nobody pretends they're perfect, but the reality is they've been a great beacon for that value that they say they believe in more than anything, which is personal freedom. Uh, they didn't get there easily. They argued long and hard amongst themselves about how to get the balance right because of the fallibility of people and the possible of mo possibility for mob rule taking over. On the other hand, how do they recognize the nobility of the individual and maximize their freedom? So the debates were absolutely endless. And there's yes. two big questions that arise out of this for my mind. Uh, one is that um, in 1798, John Adams said this, a very, very famous uh, remark, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Well, people today would say that's nonsense. We can only be free when we get rid of that basis for our freedoms. We've got to dispose of it. It's cruel. It's oppressive. Um, was Adams actually, do you think, right? Is history or is unfolding of events telling us that maybe he really was right? Oh, well, I mean, I think that's true. And, and well, I mean, Adam's basic thesis there is that the American experiment in, in freedom uh, requires 
a precondition that people are restrained by moral principles, which of course in the 18th century meant religious principles. And that is not something that is unique to John Adams. Uh, Even John Stuart Mill writing later in the 1850s said that for any kind of sort of healthy, free, constitutional, representative democracy to work, the people need virtue. Uh, If people don't have virtue, if people don't have self-restraint, then essentially what happens is that people stop trusting one another. Uh, For freedom to work, for a free society to work, you need people who you can trust. You don't enter into contracts with people that you can't trust. You wouldn't enter into contract with someone who you didn't think had a fairly strong moral fiber. Now you might, now someone will come along and say, oh, but you know, you've always got the state to make sure that people honor their word. But that's the very point that John Adams is making, that if all you are left with to make sure that people honor their word is not an internal sense of morality, but the state, then by definition, it is no longer a free country because it is the state that is stepping in all the time to make sure that people do the right thing rather than an actual genuine commitment uh, to morality. But the other, the other part of, of, uh, of, of John Adams' quote is that, you know, that it requires a religious people. And again, that, this is also very interesting because historically the foundation of morality has tended to be understood in terms of religion. And today people understand the foundation of morality uh, less so in those terms, but that is actually the historical anomaly. Throughout most of history, uh, even the greatest thinkers have considered the, the foundation of morality to somehow be connected with the idea that human beings are accountable to a God or gods. And so what happens when you take away the religious element of public morality, well, what it kind of leaves is a sort of vacuum. And there's a sense in which the whole project of the Enlightenment turned out to be an attempt to sort of fill that vacuum with something else. And one doesn't want to exaggerate the secular, the sort of the secular nature of the Enlightenment period. And we could probably talk about this a bit more later because the British Enlightenment was far more open and, and, and hospitable to religion than say the French Enlightenment was. But even the French Enlightenment thinkers tended to believe in God. They were what we would call deists. And even someone like Voltaire, the most anti-Christian of the French Enlightenment philosophers, thought that the only thing more dangerous and pernicious to the world than Christianity was atheism. Uh, that's a, repeat that. That's a, yeah. Voltaire believed that. Yeah. That's Vol- a really interesting point. Yeah, Voltaire was no friend of Christianity. Uh, he hated Christianity, but he sincerely believed that it, the one thing that was worse than Christianity was atheism. Uh, because atheism, as far as Voltaire is concerned, means that there are no consequ- there are really no moral laws that we have to obey and there are no consequences for any of our actions and, and consequently there's really no foundation for any kind of civil order. And so Voltaire, and like others like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, and, and other French philosophical thinkers, although they weren't Christians, they were not atheists for the most part. They, they, they thought that in a sense belief in God is rational, otherwise how do you explain the universe? But also belief in God is a kind of necessary moral principle. 
Without God, what are you left with? And even Immanuel Kant, the German Enlightenment thinker, thought the same thing. He thought at the end of the day, after even all his very ingenious moral philosophy, he thought at the end of the day, uh, you, you have to refer to God as a matter of moral necessity. Without the idea of a God, it's almost impossible, uh, says Immanuel Kant, to make any sense of the existence of any moral laws. And I guess in some ways, the thinker who really saw this most clearly was a thinker who was incredibly hostile, not just to Christianity, but also to the Enlightenment. And that was the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche, exactly, who basically said that the whole Enlightenment project is little more than an attempt to put Christianity on different foundations. And he was absolutely right. Uh, he, in coming to the view that all religion poisons everything, to use more modern language, all you're left with, the only morality left, is the struggle for power, the strong man. And there's another one of my guests pointed out, uh, Mussolini, when he first met Hitler, gave him a complete leather-bound set of Nietzsche's books. The only morality is strength. And of course, to some extent infused with the Darwinianist idea, Darwinist idea yeah. uh, of, of the fittest shall survive. Now, I don't want to offend people who, after a long period of careful thought, have concluded that they can't believe in God. But just as a Christian is constantly challenged to think through their position, I think there are massive challenges mm. for atheists to work out how we might live if there is no God. I mean, Nietzsche saw the problem as an atheist. Yeah. And you know, let's put it kindly, he died in a padded cell. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think it's, uh, I think what we want to make clear is that I think you and I would share this, this belief is that the problem with atheism is not that it necessarily leads to Nazism and a survival of the fittest mentality. It doesn't. The problem with atheism is that it doesn't necessarily lead to anything and which means that it doesn't necessarily lead to something that could stop um, a kind of Nazi mentality. There's nothing in atheism that, 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 that you can derive from atheism that says we ought to take a strong stance against some of these horrific ideologies. And, and, and Nietzsche Nietzsche's a fascinating figure uh, because Nietzsche was one of those 19th century philosophers, and there were others as well, who really understood the implications of, of, of atheism. Uh, modern atheist philosophers like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Lawrence Krauss they kind of have this triumphant, um, celebratory, joyful atheism, as though it's sort of freeing us all from something really, really oppressive. And it's sort of the beginning of sort of a whole new age of optimism. Whereas thinkers like Nietzsche in Germany and other thinkers in England like Matthew Arnold, uh, they saw the cost of the decline of Christianity uh, in culture and among the intellectual class. And the cost was meaning. The cost was any foundation for believing that life has any objective meaning and any foundation for morality. And Nietzsche, and you know this, John, but Nietzsche, in a very famous book he wrote called The Gay Science, uh, likens uh, the loss of faith, which he calls the death of God, uh, he likens it to sort of unchaining the earth from the sun or taking a sponge and wiping away the horizon. 
these are things that the man who is delivering this message that God is dead is not celebrating. He's kind of standing there in fearful awe of what human beings have done as they have set God aside. And he, and he asks the question, where are we going? Uh, the earth, it, it's going up, it's going down, it's going left, it's going right. It's just hurtling into outer space with no direction. And that was something that the 19th century atheists understood, that if you take away the, the theological Christian foundation for morality and for what philosophers might call sort of normativity, any kind of values, then you're left with nothingness. You're left with nihilism. Now, Nietzsche steps in and kind of tries to fill the fill the void in a rather nasty way. And exactly as you say, that he tries to fill it with power. And so for Nietzsche, Nietzsche sort of tries to kind of go back to a, a pre-Christian ancient ethic, uh, kind of a Homeric, uh, heroic, power-centric ethic. And he, and he brings this out in his book, The Genealogy of Morals. And he says, well, those who criticize strong people for uh, having their way over weak people, he says they're just as irrational as the lambs who criticize the eagles, who find the lambs very, very tasty. I mean, Nietzsche says, you know, if we're just basically biological machines who have evolved along Darwinian lines, and Nietzsche is writing, you know, 30 years after Darwin publishes his Origin of Species in 1859, if we are basically sort of Darwinian biological machines, it's kind of irrational to hold people morally accountable, uh, accountable for behaving that way. And that's the universe that we're left with, with Nietzsche, and he understood that. Now, it's often assumed that, of course, the, the writers of the American Constitution were necessarily Christian. They were more religious, that was the age and what have you. But in reality, most of them would have been deists or enlightenment people, probably with the exception of Alexander Hamilton, whose place in history has been, I think, much uh, underplaced because he died so young in a, and in a foolish way. But I'm often struck by well-meaning people who I think would say, what's your problem? You don't need a religious base. Look at the American forefathers. They saw these great ideas of the worth of all individuals as self-evident truths. That seems to me to be something that falls over pretty quickly because although they were very clever and we rightly admire the American founders, in fact, it's not self-evident at all that these truths are, 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 are to be upheld. Yeah. Uh, if it was, peace would reign right across the world. In fact, peaceful societies have been the anomaly and still are. Mm. Well, as many uh, sort of philosophers have said after, after the Declaration of Independence, a uh, few things are, are less self-evident than the idea that all human beings are equal. Uh, but the clue is almost found in the Declaration of Independence itself, where he says that we find these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created yeah. equal. And so what we can sort of see is that the only reason someone like Thomas Jefferson and others thought that human equality, whatever that means, is, is self-evident, like two plus two equals four, is because they themselves had been formed in a culture that took something like that for granted. And that culture was very much a Judeo-Christian culture. Uh, and, and there's a sense in which the Declaration of Independence and its, its assertion of human equality and, and human dignity in a way, that is a, a tremendous product of 
the impact that Christianity wound up having on politics uh, since its inception. Now, in terms of how Christianity has impacted politics over the years, I think just the best way to think about it sort of in the abstract is that Christianity, the, the legacy of Christianity, politically speaking, is essentially the unfolding of the idea that all human beings are created in the image of God, but not just that. That idea together with the idea that all human beings are sinful. And what that meant was that politics and social organization could, on the one hand, aspire to honoring the intrinsic dignity of human beings. And yet at the same time, so what that meant was that progress was something that was possible, actual moral progress in society, that is our institutions evolving to honor our dignity more and more. But also that that sense of progress could be at the same time restrained by a realistic understanding that human beings are not perfectable, or at least not perfectable in this life, but restrained by an understanding of, of human sinfulness. And so what the Christian tradition enabled was a belief that we can actually improve the condition of human beings and yet not falling into the trap of utopianism, which history has also taught, has proven to be incredibly destructive. And the impact that Christianity has had on politics and society is uh, just, it's, it's impossible to underestimate, but it's got to be understood in terms of different traditions of Christianity. So for example, very early on, you know, in, in obviously in the book of Matthew, in the book of Mark, uh, Christ himself uh, draws a distinction between what we today would call the church and the state. Now, for a distinction to be drawn between the church and the state in the ancient world, that in itself was something of a revolution because as ancient historians will say, in the ancient world, and this was pretty common in ancient cultures, there really was no separate, there was no distinction really between uh, what we would call religion and politics. It was all sort of inter intertwined. Uh, very often rulers performed the tasks of priests and rulers were worshipped as gods. Whereas Jesus says, no, these two terms are to be distinguished. So that in itself was very important. But in the medieval period, what the Roman Catholic theologians do is that they take some ideas that are kind of around there in the ancient world, uh, particularly from the Stoics, this idea of, of, of a natural law, sort of a law that is above governments and not necessarily created by human beings. And they really develop it uh, in a fine philosophical way and really make um, completely standard during the Middle Ages, the idea that in actual fact, there are moral principles that are above the state. And so early Christianity and medieval Christianity suddenly makes totalitarianism absolutely impossible in a way that it wasn't really impossible in the Roman Empire, because it essentially says that there are limits to what rulers can do, and those limits are contained in the natural law, the law of God, and even there's an is an earthly institution that can hold a ruler accountable, and that is the church. That is a massive change in, 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 in politics in history. And then when you go to the Reformation period, the Protestant 
Christians, uh, took some of the ideas, again, of, of medieval Catholic Christians on the notion of, of, of legitimate political rule by, cons by the consent of people who are ruled, and notions that individuals have individual rights. These were things developed by Catholics, and the Protestants emphasized these things even more, particularly the Puritan Protestants who had a very heavy emphasis on the notion that government is only legitimate if it has the consent of the subjects. And they base that to a large extent actually on their reading of the Bible and their reading of the New Testament and the way that they believe the church was organized, which is essentially congregations electing their own pastors. And this Puritan tradition had a tremendous impact on the first sort of great figure of modern liberal democracy, John Locke. And John Locke writes his two treatises of government, uh, where he bases his ideas of property rights and, and his ideas of government by consent on the idea that we are created in the image of God and we're God's property. And so all of this is a massive revolution in compa uh, compared to how people in the ancient world tended to think. Uh, in the ancient world, justice was often just used as a synonym for power. Uh, and the, the classic example of that is the Melian Dialogue in 416 BC, where the Athenians basically say to the island of Melos, you know, join us or we'll absolutely destroy you. And the Melians say, well, what about justice? And the Athenians say to the Melians, this is what justice is, that the strong will do what they can and the weak will suffer what they must. That was a very common, commonly accepted understanding of justice in the ancient world. The reason it becomes a minority view of justice and to this and, and nowadays is seen as the very opposite of justice is because of the Christian influence. And of course, Tom Holland writes a lot about this sort of thing uh, in his book, Dominion. Uh, but the fact that we have uh, justifications for democracy today that say all people are equal, uh, the fact that we believe for the most part that utopian projects will only result in destruction uh, is be uh, because humans are uh, intrinsically flawed. These are very much, uh, I would say, gifts actually of, of Christianity throughout the ages. I was once struck by a neat little, what I thought was a piece of writing by an American. We're so good we had to give ourselves the vote. We're so bad we had to give ourselves the vote. <laughs> and it's a reference to the nobility of the individual, yeah. Pascal might have put it. Uh, mm. uh, man is uh, uh, the, the most noble thing in the universe, but he's also uh, the, you know, the, the scum of the universe, capable of being both. Yeah. So we had to give ourselves a vote because everyone should have a say in where the society goes, should authorise the government, but then because people that you elect to power are corruptible, they become lazy, they become self-centred, you've got to give them the people of power to remove them. Well, that reminds me of a very famous quote from the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. I think it was from his book, The Children of Light and the Children of Darkness, which is itself, of course, a quote from the New Testament. And the quote is something like this, and I don't think anyone said it any better, but uh, I'll use uh, the masculine language of the original quote, but man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. Man's tendency to injustice makes democracy necessary. And so if everyone was just mere demons with no capacity to do anything good, 
democracy would suddenly would, would immediately fall into mob rule and warfare. And the Greeks themselves had a word for mob rule, oclocracy. Having said that, though, we do have a capacity. So we do have a capacity to treat one another justly, and yet we have a tendency not to which means that we have to hold one another account as well. And historically, what we've found is that the best way to hold one another account, to account uh, is through democratic procedure. And so I th the unique, I think, contribution that Christianity brings to democracy is a very powerful justification for democracy. And it is essentially that democracy is the best way to keep other people's sin in check and at the same time, the best way to honor the dignity in other human beings. And I think historically that has actually proven to be, um, that's proven to bear fruit. When you look at the, the countries in the world where people most want to live, they are democracies with a strong Christian heritage as well. Now, many people in, in those democracies, in our culture today, many of yours and my friends would say, oh, no, no, you've got that all wrong. It was the Enlightenment that gave us freedom. Uh, it wasn't the Reformation, it wasn't religion. Uh, they were all fo always fighting one another. It resulted in tensions in war. It had to be brought to an end. The Enlightenment was as growing out of religious conflict and warfare. And that's what's provided us with contrast. Your response? <laughs> I think it's horribly simplistic because what people forget is that as the Enlightenment is taking place, particularly through the 18th century, there's another huge event that is taking place at the same time, and that is the evangelical revivals. And so when we talk about everything that's going on in the 18th century, which we sort of call the Enlightenment century, we have to take into account that it is not just sort of Enlightenment ideas of reason that are forming the way that people think and shaping institutions and, and social changes that are taking place, but also evangelical Christianity. And the, the obvious example of this is, of course, uh, someone like William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. But it's so important to remember that, that again, most Enlightenment thinkers were not atheists. Most Enlightenment thinkers did really believe that God is necessary for any sort of coherent moral theory. There were some who did not believe that. So there are people like, for example, Jeremy Bentham and some of the French philosophes who did not believe that. But those people tended not to be the mainstream thinkers. The more mainstream thinkers in the Enlightenment, someone like, for example, in England, a guy named William Paley, who had a famous argument for the existence of God based on the idea if you were walking down the beach and you came across something that seemed to tell the time, uh, what is the best way to understand where that thing came from? Did it come together by chance through random forces of nature or was it designed? Well, how much more complex is the universe to a clock? So how much more ought we think that the universe is designed? That's William Paley, who was uh, one of the most influential Enlightenment thinkers of the British tradition. And when, when William Paley believed strongly in reason, but he believed that reason supported Christianity and that it even supported an established church. The point that I want to make is, is that, yeah, the Enlightenment period was absolutely seminal in bringing about uh, uh, modern, many modern notions of freedom and many modern uh, political practices such as you know, modern democracy. 
which in, in many ways the thought about modern democracy predates the Enlightenment to many Puritans, I should just say. But again, the problem is that when people, the problem is when people characterize the Enlightenment as some kind of secular, uh, anti-religious process that took place. To some extent, that is the case of the Enlightenment in France. But the French Enlightenment was quite unique for the age. And many other countries looked at the French experiment with, with kind of horror, being horrified that they pulled down the church, being horrified that some of the French philosophers declared no God. The more mainstream uh, expressions of the Enlightenment were more like the British Enlightenment, which said, okay, we don't want to base our social institutions and our social practices on superstition and oppression, by which they generally meant Roman Catholicism. But we believe that there are reasonable expressions of Christianity, most Enlightenment thinkers thought. Uh, John Locke himself, an early Enlightenment thinker, wrote a whole book called The Reasonableness of Christianity. And much of the British Enlightenment and the German Enlightenment, and I would say the American Enlightenment, was an attempt uh, to, in a sense, restate many Christian moral principles on grounds that they considered to be reasonable and rational. But that, to the Enlightenment mind, did not necessarily mean anti-religious. Seems to me that there's another very important point there, though, too. Uh, the Age of Enlightenment <clears throat> was meant to be the Age of Reason. We could figure things out by reason. Yet many Enlightenment figures had some views that were anything but compassionate. There were major Enlightenment figures who believed that slavery was part of the natural order of things, that women were inferior, uh, and that racism uh, was acceptable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, there's a, a great short article that's available online by Professor Peter Harrison at the University of Queensland showing uh, the Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire, David Hume, Immanuel Kant. These were the greatest of the Enlightenment thinkers that they had views on race that we would today consider to be just classical racism. Um, and so, yeah, the problem is that people nowadays tend to define the Enlightenment uh, in terms of their own most cherished ideals. And the thing is that the Enlightenment thinkers were not as sort of cosmopolitan as we would like to think they were, but at the same time, for the most part, they were not as secular as we would like to think they, think they were. And in terms of America, um, Americans during the 19th century who were arguing against slavery, so, and America was an Enlightenment country, but when you look at a lot of the, the, the tracts and the leaflets against slavery in America, they were not arguments based on science or sort of pure reason, as we would call today. They were arguments based on the idea that humans are created in the image of God. Again, essentially what the anti-slavery movement was to a large extent was a later unfolding of this idea that we are created in the image of God. Let me read an absolutely incredible quote from an anti-slaver. Um, her name was uh, Angelina Grimke. She was an anti-slaver in America and also a feminist. And this is what she has to say about, um, slave, about slavery. She says, read then on the subject of slavery. This is something she wrote in 1836. Search the, script, search the scriptures daily, whether the things I have told you are true. Other books and papers might be a great help to you in this investigation, but they are not necessary. And it is hardly probable that your committees of vigilance will allow you to have any other. 
The Bible then is the book I want you to read in the spirit of inquiry. And she goes on to say that our books and papers are mostly commentaries on the Bible. That was for the most part the anti-slavery movement in Enlightenment America. And anyone who doesn't appreciate that really doesn't understand the full richness of the Enlightenment. But to come to Australia, Mm. Steve, what can our history tell us about how we have become the country we are today? One of the, I think one of the, the best things one of my students ever told me was a young man who came up to me after I taught a semester, after I taught a, a course on Australian history at, at where I currently teach at Campion College in Sydney. And he said, you know, Dr. Shavura, he said, I loved Australia before I took your class, but now that I, after taking your class, I love Australia even more. And I, I don't run my Australian history classes to create sort of little nationalists. Uh, that's not the reason. But I think what he was getting at and what I try to do is just show how the unique and historical oddities of Australian history really explain why we are the country that we are today. And in terms of, of sort of major forces that historically kind of explain why Australians are the way they are, quite pragmatic, uh, often quite fast to look to the government to solve our problems, and quite egalitarian. Uh, Our egalitarianism was noticed uh, ruefully and, and, and bemoaned even as early as the 19th century by Europeans who came over and, and found that they weren't treated like they were back in Europe. I think three things really come to mind, and that is the fact that the original people who came to Australia in the late 18th and early 19th century were not Australians. This is something that I tell my students in the very first lecture. Australia was not settled by Australians. Australia was settled by the British. The people who came to Australia in 1788 had British minds and they brought with them the ideas of the British Enlightenment, which meant uh, tremendous respect for the rule of law and a respect for the role that religion plays in any stable, civilized society. So that was something that had tremendous influence on the Australian civil order. The other thing that's had a huge impact in Australia is, of course, what the great Geoffrey Blaney, who you've interviewed, called the tyranny of distance. The fact that Australia was so far from any European civilization at the time, and the fact that the Australian continent is so huge and generally very sparsely populated uh, meant that there were certain things that the government had to do because they couldn't be done by private enterprise. And those things included uh, the building of churches. So um, uh, up until and and, well, throughout the first half of the 19th century, uh, colonial governments uh, helped to build churches, helped to pay clergy because there just weren't enough people living together for the most part to put their money together and voluntarily build these things. And so we, the government had to build churches. The government had to build railways from the mid-19th century onwards, where in other countries they were uh, being built by private entrepreneurs. Uh, government was also distributing land early on to convicts. And, and, and that brings us to sort of the third really unique factor, convictism, which gave uh, Australia a strong egalitarian and anti-authoritarian tendency. And I think the Irish Catholics also brought that. 
Uh, but the other thing with convictism is that it accelerated Australia's path to democracy, not just because we had a kind of egalitarian streak in our culture from early on, but because after land was given to the convicts, it turned out embarrassingly to be the case that when the vote was introduced, uh, when, when the sort of the when the vote was, intru was introduced um, to elect people to legislative councils in New South Wales, because a lot of ex-convicts had land and had made, more, had made money over the years, they actually could afford the vote. And good, sort of upstanding, God-fearing Scots and English and Welsh who came over couldn't. And so the great fear was that it would be a convict-dominated legislative, uh, legislative assembly. And so Basically, the franchise in the 1850s was brought down so low that pretty much all men could vote, basically making a democracy out of all the colonies by the end of the 1850s. And so in order to under... And the other aspect of, Australia, of Australia's character, again, that, that pragmatism, a kind of anti-ideological slant, and maybe for better or worse, a preoccupation with you know, making money, um, that probably goes back to the tyranny of distance as well, where when you think about it, who on earth would even come to Australia in the early days? Well, basically people who were bent on making their fortune here, who, had, who, who were high energy but really wanted to make money. And those are the sorts of people that came over. And those, to a large extent, are the sorts of people who built this country. The other thing is that, again, the tyranny of distance also meant that our religion very early on was strongly influenced again by Protestant evangelicalism because the evangelicals in the 18th and 19th century in England, particularly in the later 18th century, very often couldn't find uh, jobs in the Church of England. They were just not wanted. They were, they were seen as, well, kind of crazy. And so the only places a lot of them could actually find jobs were actually over in the colonies. And so there was a disproportionate number of evangelicals who came over here. And so Australia, to a large extent, was a product of all these forces, but also evangelical Christianity because of the tyranny of distance that no one else wanted to come over here early on. And of course, all of that, that is documented in Stuart Piggott and Bob Linder's History of Evangelicalism in Australia. But when you understand all the forces that have made us quite pragmatic, that have made us maybe a bit too quick to look to the state, that have made us very uh, egalitarian. You can't help but uh, marvel at the strangeness, uh, idiosyncrasy of our history. And, and I think really, really like it. But there are some of the things that would help us to understand why we are the way that we are. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.